We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. I'm the only thing standing between the American dream and total anarchy, madness, and chaos. In the midst of a deadly global pandemic, on November 3rd, the United States will go to the polls for an era-defining election. In the coming weeks on Intelligence Squared, we'll be speaking to world-leading experts about what's at stake in Biden versus Trump. The most important election of our lifetime. This is the most important election of our times. Probably one of the most important elections of our lifetime. This is the most important election in our lifetimes. Politicians say every time, oh, this is the most important election. This one's really that important. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to part one of the Intelligence Squared US election miniseries. In this episode, we were joined by Thomas Friedman, columnist at the New York Times, described by many as the most influential columnist in the world. And he spoke to Robert Peston, political editor at ITV, all about the final weeks of the presidential race, from Donald Trump contracting the coronavirus to what will happen if we have a contested election after November 3rd. It's a really fascinating conversation. And if you do enjoy it, don't forget you can join Intelligence Squared plus and watch along these events live and ask your questions to the speakers as well as have your name read out right here on the podcast just go to www.intelligencesquared.com slash plus subscribe today with our special discount code podcast p-o-d-c-a-s-t podcast now let's go to the episode well thank you so much and i just want to say what a pleasure it is to be here tonight there is no story more important in the whole world than the US presidential election. Uh, and, you know, we're living through a time of quite remarkable, uh, quite remarkably important events. And there's frankly nobody I would rather be discussing this with than Tom Friedman, one of my own journalistic heroes, three time Pulitzer Prize winner, author of a series of highly influential books. His New York Times column, an absolutely must read. Tom, very good to see you tonight. I noticed that your um, last column made you know, a smallish claim about the importance of this election. I, I, you, you, you described um, Trump as the greatest ever threat, I think, to America's democratic settlement. You know, more of a threat than the Japanese at Pearl Harbor or Russia at the time of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't know whether you would include you know, the English between 1775 and 1783 is a more or less, <laughs> a smaller or bigger threat. Uh, we can discuss that later. But, 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 but what, so why do you think this election is so important? Why do you regard Trump with such terror? Well, first of all, Robert, it's great to be with you and uh, with uh, all my friends at Intelligence Squared. We've had so many wonderful discussions there. The reason I argued, I basically said that this was the most dangerous moment because, you know, even during the Civil War, 
even during the Cold War, even during the communist scare, even during the Great Depression, we've been able to hold free and fair elections and peacefully transfer power in a basically uncontested way. Um, and even with Gore v. Bush, that contestation was basically resolved to the satisfaction of the country. Robert, we've never had a moment of a president who has become the uh, who is engaged in an act of national vote suppression, which is what Trump is doing. He basically is saying to the public, there are two things and two things only that will happen on November 3rd. And Joe Biden being elected president is not one of them. Either I will win the national vote or I will delegitimize the vote. I will claim to my followers, uh, to the world, that all the mail-in ballots that are going to be significant in this election because of COVID-19 are fraudulent. And um, those ballots are expected to favor Democrats two to one, roughly. And we could be witnessing for the first time in our history a contested election that can only be resolved by the Supreme Court or the House, which House of Representatives, which Trump knows favor him. And that is an extremely dangerous scenario, it seems to me. I mean, it certainly is a very worrying scenario. Just for people in the UK who are not close enough to understand the detail of what's happening with mail in voting, just explain, first of all, what level of mail in votes we are expecting to see and why Trump thinks that he's got a semi-plausible argument that there will be significant fraud. People uh, voting by mail has been gradually growing in every election. And in uh, 2016 or 2018, it was about 20 percent. So about one in five ballots were mailed in. Very ordinary process. Trump himself uses it. We have some states, though, where it actually is the norm. In Washington state, for instance, 97% of people vote by mail. And it's very straightforward. There's always a problem with voting by mail, but it usually affects, you know, a tenth of 1% of the ballots. You have to fill out a ballot, usually sign it, lick it, seal it, and put it in another envelope. And people being people, they mix it up, they sign the wrong envelope, they do it. So there's there's usually on the margins uh, some very minor problem. But the best witness to this process is uh, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, who last week testified before Congress that there is simply no history of voter manipulation, corruption or abuse through mail-in balloting. The response of Trump to that actually wasn't Trump. It was Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, is, oh, that's the FBI director. He can't even find his lost email. Who would expect him to know anything about balloting. So that's pretty troubling to me because in this election, because of the pandemic, it's believed that mail-in balloting could go up to 30, 40 percent even on a national scale. And what that means is that, so let's imagine, Robert, it's election night Mm. and the voting for uh, Michigan comes in and and it'll say uh, 60 percent of the votes counted and uh, Trump is leading by 10 percent at midnight. And Trump goes out and says, I won Michigan. Then the state of Michigan says we need actually three, four, maybe a week to count all the mail-in votes. Then over that week, suddenly Trump's lead starts to shrink, shrink. And then, bam, as the mail-in votes are counted, it turns out Biden won the state by five or eight percent. Trump will be saying, you know what's going on every day? He's going to be out there saying, folks, you know what's going on? behind the scenes where you can't see they're cooking the books they're 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 stuffing the ballots they're stealing the election go out into the streets and stop them that is that is not just a nightmare scenario that is a likely scenario and that's why this is such a dangerous moment so just to be clear at the moment you think it is likely not a tail risk, but likely that we'll see civil disobedience, civil unrest after this, in, in the immediate aftermath of polling day. So I think that unless there is an overwhelming Biden landslide that's simply, you know, uncontestable by Trump, anything close, if we have a close election, Trump will be using his bully pulpit to delegitimize the vote in hopes of 
knowing he's probably lost, in hopes of throwing the voting into the House of Representatives or the Supreme Court. Now, let's look at what happens in both cases. Mm. The way our Constitution is written, that if an election gets thrown into the House for whatever reasons, what happens is right now, Democrats, you say, well, that's no problem for Biden. Democrats control the House. Mm. Well, first of all, it's the new House. The House that will be real that will be elected in this election. But secondly, more importantly, under the Constitution, every state's congressional delegation gets only one vote. So um, what that means is if you actually look at the states and what the balance within states are between Republican House members and Democrats, it actually turns out that 26 states, 26 important number, more than Mm -hmm. half have republican majorities it's all skewed by new york and california so california is a huge number of democratic house members but you know georgia or north carolina or michigan may not so trump actually has an advantage if it gets thrown into the house So, so california only gets one vote just to be absolutely clear about this so they may have 30 congressmen and wyoming has one or montana has one but that one republican in montana will count the same as 30 Democratic House members in the state of California. Yeah, then if it goes to the Supreme Court, of course, the reason Trump wants to ram through Amy Coney Barrett, Mm -hmm. uh, he will then, the court will will not be, uh, he'll have a 6-3 majority in the court if it goes to the Supreme Court. So even if Roberts decides to do the right thing, or even if Roberts and Gorsuch decide to do the right thing, Trump could have an almost insurmountable advantage in the Supreme Court. And, and so can I, just, can I just ask you about that, though? Because obviously, you know, the, the institution of the Supreme Court is, you know, I mean, it's such an important institution in respect of the way that you're governed. Are you honestly saying that, you know, reputable Republican members of the Supreme Court will follow politics, not natural justice? It's a, it's a very good question, Robert. It's a very good question, and I'm not saying that. There is part of the romantic American in me that says, take out Justice Thomas. I think he's a hack, and he will, he will follow politics. But I, and Alito probably as well. But I think Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, I don't know. Roberts, I'm not worried about. I think he'll do the right thing. And so I think it's not automatic that the court would go his way, especially given the way Trump has said, it's my court. You know, this this court would be permanently wounded if it did that. And and, and so I think I, I, I think it's not a foregone conclusion. Now, before we get on to the issue of the moment, which is the impact that his COVID infection is going to have on the election, I just wondered if you could characterize for us quite how much is at stake for the president. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about here is that investigation that the New York Times did just a few days ago, which appeared to show that this is a president whose wealth has been greatly exaggerated and indeed risks potentially going bust over the next few years. How frightened is he that his entire world collapses once he's out of the the White House? Well, again, it's a really good question, Robert. In American slang, we actually have a we have a term for prison. We call it the big house. You get sentenced to jail. And I think Trump's fear is that he will, if he loses, he will go from the White House to the big house, if not to the big house, to the poor house. And so he is desperate to stay in office. This man is the most corrupt person who has ever occupied the White House. And if he had four more years, four more years to stuff people into his hotel in Washington, former years to do God knows what, you know, it may be the only way he can get out of debt. Yeah, terrifying, isn't it? Now, let's get on to the story of the last few days, this extraordinary super spreading incident in which not just Trump, but, you know, an extraordinary number of people around him have been infected. And then, I mean, the sort of jaw dropping spectacle of a man with COVID you know, getting into a car with his security detail and waving to his fans, uh, you know, behavior that every doctor on the planet regards as, you know, borderline nuts and highly dangerous. How is this all going to play? 
Well, you know, Trump has always wanted to present himself as Superman, and it turns out he's super spreader. As people have pointed out, there are more people with coronavirus diagnosed within White House with coronavirus last week than were diagnosed in all of New Zealand. So his his whole uh, administration has become a, a basic super spreader. I would say, Robert, Democrats and liberals, though, have to be very smart about countering his message. Trump is a brilliant marketer. And you can now see his message. I heard it in the debate, and you can see it now being echoed by Republican congressmen or senators, even those who've come down with COVID-19. And the, what they're going to present voters is, we were for opening the economy. Biden was for killing the economy. We are the opening the economy party. He was the killing economy party. And I will say the press and Democrats sometimes play into this with their own hysterical, and I've had a rather uh, heretical view on this from the very beginning, so we, we can talk about that a little bit. But it is so important, it seems to me, for, for Democrats and for Biden to say, this is not about opening the economy and closing the economy. It was by, about opening the economy by doing things that are easy and smart mm. or opening and keep it open or opening the economy and doing things that are dumb and reckless that ends up closing the economy. I believe, Robert, history will damn Trump, not for what he didn't do in the beginning when when figuring it out was hard and confusing. It's what he refuses to do now when the solutions are easy and totally clear. Wear a mask, social distance. We watched, Tom, this extraordinary debate. I mean, I've certainly never seen anything like it. You know, it didn't really transport me, transport me back to ancient Greece. You know, the abuse that Trump substituted for rational argument was jaw-dropping. What's your sense of, of what, what he thought he was doing and whether it was effective? Well, the polls have rendered the judgment on the last question. You know, it was, it was offensive to Republicans. And I think he, he really hurt himself also, Robert, with the, the most important constituency he needs, which is suburban women. He reminded every suburban woman either of a bad date or a spousal abuser they once encountered. You know, what I mean, and and so it, it, whatever he was thinking, it didn't work. He thought he was just going to show that Biden, was, if you just blew on him, he would fall over. You know what I mean? He didn't even give Biden a chance to fall over, actually. He barely gave him a chance to respond. And so you you saw uh, he's a little unhinged, you know, Trump. There's just no question about it. God knows what he was thinking. But that was that was no debate that that was acted out on the basis of no conceivable debate theory. I can imagine interrupt and insult the moderator. Don't let your opponent have a chance to talk. And it turns out you're already infected with covid-19 and your whole family shows up and takes off their mass, violating the rules of the debate. I mean, and it, it has not played well for him. And I think the thing to keep in mind, again, I make no predictions on the outcome of the election, but people are voting right now. So it's not like, oh, no problem. Well, he'll make up with it in debate number two, and number three. No, people are voting by mail right now. And so it was a, it was a reckless thing to do. In the UK, the number of people who would admit to admiring and liking Donald Trump are, is, is, is sort of tiny, you know, even our prime minister, who gets on with him quite well, you know, occasionally qualifies his judgments about the American president. So one of the things that many people over here simply don't understand is why probably 30 to 40 percent of voters aren't sort of nose holding Republicans. They love him. He speaks to them and for them. So two questions, really. What has happened to America, that a man who abuses women, women, excuse me, some would say is a racist, that, as I say, indulges in the most simplistic, divisive arguments rather than trying to unite America. Why do so many Americans like him? And even if he loses, what does that mean for the future of America and American democracy? Because these people aren't suddenly going to become you know, old-fashioned rationalists? Well, it's, it is the $64,000 question that historians will, I think, long puzzle over. My own short take on it is this. I think about it in two levels. First of all, I think the most important thing you need to know about Trump voters is that they hate the people who hate Trump 
much more than they care about Trump. Mm -hmm. So we in the media keep coming to them with more information about Trump. He abuses women. He's been accused of rape. He paid $750 in taxes. How much did you pay? Okay. We keep giving them more information, but they're actually not listening to us. And they're not even looking at him. What they're looking at are liberal elites who they think look down on them. I wrote this about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, I've been a foreign and reporter for 40 years. And if there's I actually changed my business card uh, last year to say uh, I used to be Thomas L. Friedman, New York Times foreign affairs columnist. And now it says Thomas L. Friedman, New York Times humiliation and dignity correspondent. <laughs> because if there's one thing I've learned, it's humiliation and dignity are the two most powerful human emotions. The quest for dignity and the rage at feeling humiliated. And so there was some of this in Brexit going on, too. And yeah. so I, I know it's not unfamiliar to Robert. So so the. Trump voters, so many of them actually hate the people who hate Trump more than they care about Trump. And so Trump becomes the stick they use to poke in the eye of what they see as liberal elites. But over and above that, there is a set of issues that Trump touches that that go beyond, say, that that humiliation issue. Americans do want a president who is comfortable expressing patriotism. Okay, mm. In an age where we have 11 million illegal immigrants here, there are a lot of Americans I'm even one of them who thinks that if you want to come into our country, you should have to ring the doorbell, you know, that, that you can't have a country where anyone can just walk in. OK, my position, I'm for a very high wall with a very big gate, but I, mm. but I am for a process. You know, sure. they think that it's important that we redivide the pie, but they also think it's important that we grow the pie. Mm. They think that, you know, it's good that that we're dealing with these race issues now, but they also think that political correctness on college campuses is out of control mm. and trump checks all of those boxes yeah. and so um you put all of that together and i say not my cup of tea but but don't think he isn't speaking to and then overlay that with a murdochian news ecosystem now where these people like liberals you know live in their own sort of separate information ecosystems and and in the in the Fox ecosystem, Trump had a great debate. Uh, he's going to recover from COVID-19 like Superman. We should have opened the economy long ago. I mean, it's just all we're talking about is Greek to all these people. They're in a completely separate ecosystem, as are liberals on the left. Now, Joe Biden is the oldest candidate in history. And truthfully, he doesn't really come across as a young 77. What kind of a... I mean, do you think that will have an impact on how people vote? And, and, and related to that, we're about to see the first vice presidential debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. How important will that be? I give you my, my thought on, on Biden, Robert, which is that, you know, I can't travel really now. So I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you from my home in Bethesda, Maryland. But if I could travel, where I would go is I'd go to South Carolina. Hmm. I would go to a black AME church on a Sunday morning. I'd go up to the choir and I sit down with the, um, with the black ladies in the choir and just ask them one question. Mm. You lifted Joe Biden off the floor. He was His candidacy was finished. The referee was already there. He was saying one, two, three. And you stopped his hand and you said, Joe, get up. And you lifted him off the mat. You slapped him around a little bit. You dusted him off. You threw him back in the ring with Bernie, and he knocked him out. Why did you do that? What were you thinking? You certainly didn't think you needed a black candidate. You would have chosen Cory Booker or Kamala Harris. You chose the old white guy. What were you thinking? And, and it was them. It was them led by Jim Clyburn, their congressman. Mm -hmm. And I think what they were thinking is that what the country needed, there was a, an innate and deep wisdom there. I think they sensed the country's coming apart. And that what we need most is someone who can pull it together. That all the things the left hate about Biden, that he'll actually work with Republicans, is exactly what they think the country needed. That's yeah. what I think it's about. So Biden, Robert, and Trump, they, they both have Teflon. It's very unusual. Two yeah. candidates that have Teflon. Trump's Teflon is mud. When you're completely covered in mud and the press throws more mud at you, it doesn't show up because mud on mud is invisible. Okay. $750 in taxes, womanizing, lying, cheating, 10000 whatever it is. It's just mud on mud. Biden's Teflon is his decency. So Trump's there just throwing stuff at him.
doesn't stick. People know he's a basically decent guy. I mean, I thought the stuff that Trump threw about him, about his sons, and was just, it was horrifying, actually. It was genuinely horrifying. That was the real Donald Trump, too. And people knew that. I mean, it's just, just malice. I mean, re- really, really horrible. China. Who do you think China wants to win this election? I mean, I, I regard China as probably still the biggest story, out, you know, on an ongoing basis, as it were. So, Robert, my view is both China and Russia are voting Trump in 2020. And for the same reason. They know that as long as Trump is president of the United States, America will be in turmoil. And therefore, it'll never realize its full potential. You know, I can't think of a bridge, a road or a highway you'd name after Donald Trump. Because we haven't built a thing in the last four years, okay, other than goose the stock market by, mm. by putting our kids in debt. And the second thing, both Putin and she know, is as long as Trump is president of the United States, he will never be able to galvanize a global coalition against them. He will never be able to get the EU and America and Asians to agree to deal with China on trade, and he'll never get the EU, NATO, and America uh, aligned against Russia. So for both those reasons, they're both, in my view, voting Trump. There have been some terrible, what used to be called natural disasters. I think we now think of them as man-made disasters in America. Floods, appalling fires in California. Is, is, is this stuff playing in the election? Is global warming going to be a, a serious vote-deciding vote issue? Well, you know, Mother Nature is on the ballot, whether people realize it or not, because four more years of Trump at this critical time would be hugely important. But she's on the ballot in another way, that... that This pandemic, Robert, was a natural systems event. You know, this was this pandemic is a rare moment where all of the world is facing one of Mother Nature's fastballs, to put it in American baseball terms. You know, one of her pitches that she throws at us and she throws at us fires, wildfires and droughts and and floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and germs and and viruses, even though viruses are actually living things also just looking for a warm place to call home. But these are all things she throws at at her plant and animal species to sort out who is the fittest, who shall get their DNA into the next generation. And when she throws these pitches at us, what does she ask for? Who does she, who does she reward? She doesn't reward the smartest. She doesn't reward the strongest. She actually rewards the most adaptive. Who can adapt you know, to my uh, challenges? And she actually asks you three questions. And you'll see my point here in a second. Mm. She asks you first, are you humble? Are you humble? Do you respect my virus? Because if you don't, it will kill you or someone you love. Mm. Second, she asks, are you coordinated in your response to my virus? Because I evolved it over centuries to, to basically find any crack in your collective or individual immune system. And lastly, she asks, have you built your adaptation on chemistry, biology, and physics, not politics, ideology, and an election calendar? Because if you've done the latter, I will hurt you or someone you love. So Mother Nature is here right now, not only in terms of climate, but in terms of this pandemic. And Trump's the reason he's had such a hard time with it is he doesn't see the world through nature and natural systems. His only encounter with them is building golf courses where he built waterfalls. So he actually has the illusion he can dominate nature. He sees the world through markets. And that's why he has struggled. And it's the same on climate change. Four more years of this madness. And we will be in, in, in an even deeper hole. I'm going to go across now to some of the questions that have been emailed in. I mean, there are lots of really interesting ones. Just go, to go back to where we started, there almost certainly will be a sort of barrage of court cases from all sides, you know, November the 4th onwards. In your, we've talked about the role of the House of Representatives. We've talked about the role of the Supreme Court. Is there anything else in the Constitution that we need to know about that is relevant to uh, how this thing pans out? And I suppose a related question, I mean, how many weeks of uncertainty is it conceivable we could be living through? Well, there are different calendars involved because one is when the Electoral College it's determined by constitution and i forgot uh offhand when the electors have to come to washington and actually cast yeah. their ballots and that's that's actually set by the constitution so that's Ooh. that's one deadline but you, you look this will start in the lower courts as did gore v bush and yeah. then move up and and so each party will look for a friendly lower court to get their case to the supreme court and that's why i mean i have told everyone i know and through my column Look, uh, if you have to vote by mail and you want to vote by mail for reasons of health and safety, I totally understand. But me, Robert, 
I'm going to vote in person. I will walk. I will crawl. I will bike. I will hike. I will sail. I will slither. I will slide. But I will cast. I will cast my fucking ballot for Joe Biden, and I will see it go in that box. And 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 I presume you're not going to be intimidated by. I mean, that was again another extraordinary moment in the debate where he was calling on supporters effectively to stand, you know, n- you know, near the voting machines to intimidate anybody who might be, you know, voting the wrong way. It's a measure of Trump's ignorance that he has no idea about our actual election laws that partisans, each party can have a single observer in the hall, but partisans can't come into the hall and watch the voting and do, you know, we have no tradition of that. As we have no tradition either of Republicans at scale stuffing ballots for their candidate or Democrats for theirs. You know what I mean? So it, it was just, it was Trump mouthing off. He, you know, he, he is, he's a deeply intuitive guy. He got himself elected president, so how smart am I? But he's also a real ignoramus. It's a funny combination, isn't it? I mean, I, I always think it's wrong to underestimate him. Oh, yeah, I, he, I don't underestimate him, yeah. Uh, but you shouldn't uh, overestimate him either. He can be beat, but you've got to be smart about it. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. One question has been phrased as what happens to the connected, your connected world of. Trump was to win. But actually, I want to slightly broaden it and just say, look, if you look at what's been happening, some of it connected actually to this dreadful virus. But we, you know, globalization, you know, appears to be breaking down into two competing, you might call them hemisphere, a sort of a sort of China sphere and maybe a European American connected demisphere. Is that how you see things going? Whatever happens? Well, it's a good and important question, right? You know, so let's talk about, let's call it the China question for a second, the U.S.-China question. So basically, the last 40 years of U.S.-China relations were were four decades of what I would call unconscious coupling. That is, if you woke up in America and said, hey, I want to start a business in China, I want my kid to go to school in China, I want to tour China, I want to have a Chinese partner, you just didn't, didn't really think about it. If you're a Chinese, you said, I want my kid to try to go to Harvard or Ohio State. I want to invest in America. You didn't think about it. And over those 40 years, America and China in many ways became one country, two systems. It's really America and China more than China and Hong Kong. We became one country economically. We really became fused in many, many ways. That that 40-year period, 1979 to 2019, is over. 
And I don't know what will come next. And I don't welcome that end because the world became much more prosperous and much more stable for the fact of that coupling, even with all its problems. Mm. Why is it over? Well, it's over for a number of reasons. One is the fact that for 30 of those 40 years, maybe 35 of them, Robert, we, we sold China what I call shallow goods. So stuff they wore on, sorry, China sold us shallow goods, stuff we wore on our backs, shoes we wore on our feet, socks we wore on our ankles, or solar panels we put on our roofs. We sold China deep goods, things that went deep into their society, microchips, software, technology platforms. So we sold them deep, they sold us shallow. Because of China's economic development, it can now make deep goods. Yeah. And the and, and and the example you're most familiar with is Huawei 5G. Yeah. Now they're coming to us and say, we want to sell you. We want to be inside your walls, inside yeah. underneath your sidewalk in the chatbot in your room. And what yeah. we are saying is that we have not forged the trust relationship for us to buy your deep goods. When you were just selling a shallow goods, we didn't care whether you were authoritarian, communitarian, libertarian or vegetarian. But when you want to sell us your deep goods, then that really matters. The absence of a shared trust system really matters. And that's at the core of a lot of this. Then overlay Trump and Xi Jinping. Um, you know, China today, I've been going to China every year for the last you know, 30, 40 years. And China today is so much more open than it was 40 years ago. And it's so much more closed than it was six years ago. There's been a real U-turn. And as a result of that, it's also really affected the relationship. And, and that is I put on Xi Jinping. So this is going to be so there is going to be some measure of decoupling. But but I would, you know, I wouldn't exaggerate. I think we're, we're in that definition. And I think Biden probably will be a better at that than Trump. I, I will say this for Trump. I supported Trump on China. My view is that Donald Trump is not the American president Americans deserve, but he is the American president China deserves. And 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 so I we did need someone to call the game, as it were. And I think the fact that he's done it has now built up huge leverage for Biden. If he wins, he could actually do some, I think, pretty creative stuff. And can I just ask? I mean, obviously, some terrible things are happening in China, whether it's the suppression of rights in Hong Kong or the mass imprisonment and alleged genocide of Uyghurs. How would Joe Biden, how would, you know, what kind of relationship would he have with China? Well, you know, it's it's a it's an important question, Robert, and we kind of know the answer. You go back to Obama, Biden, which was cool. I'd call it not a Cold War, but a kind of cool war. But but also understanding that China is so big and powerful, it cannot be ignored. But mm. I, I don't think there'll be a, a, res- a reluctance, I think, to um, – and they've gotten worse since Biden and, and Obama were, were in power. So that's something Biden will have to sort out. But I think it, it, it's not going to be a breakdown. It's not going to be a total human rights going back to sort of Jimmy Carter or, or Bill Clinton kind of argument. But it'll be a cool relationship, unlike you know what I think we saw – during a, a lot of those 40 years at the tail end. Now, Trump was elected with his MAGA, Make America Great Again, slogan. One question is, are we witnessing the end of American leadership in the world, whatever happens in this election? Well, it's an it's a important and profound question. And I would simply say, Robert, we aren't who we think we are. Back in 2011, I and my friend Michael Mandelbaum actually wrote a book that I think I once did an Intelligence Squared event on. It was called That Used to Be Us, How America Lost Its Way in the World It Invented, Mm. and How We Can Come Back. And we have not been on our game for a while. And the reason is we have become, you know, I've gotten in trouble with the uh, the right-wingers and for saying the following, and I so enjoy being in trouble with them. I want to repeat it here in special English, okay? Um, uh, And it's this. There's only one thing worse than a one-party autocracy, and that's a one-party democracy. And what we have become is a one-party democracy. So China is a one-party autocracy. But if you are a one-party democracy and you have a leadership that is reasonably enlightened, not about human rights, not about democracy, but simply about math, science, and engineering, you can actually order a lot of the right things from the top down. 
That's mm. not a that's not a, a free pass for what they're doing to the Uyghurs. I'm horrified by that. I'm simply you can actually say let's invest in infrastructure, let's invest in education, etc. But if you're a one party democracy, which is what we've become, which is that one party is in power and the other party spends its entire time trying to subvert that party's mm. efforts, you actually can't get anything done. And that's what's been happening in our country, really, for the last 15 years. We've become a one-party democracy. And when you have a system that has divided powers, that is built on the notion that the parties will compromise, but they won't compromise, then you just keep drifting. And so I don't know if it's the beginning or the end, but I go back to that black church in South Carolina. I think the ladies in the choir understood that. They understood that we can no longer do anything big and hard together. And when you can't do big, hard things together... You're not a great country anymore. And that's why I think they push for Joe Biden. Okay, that's very interesting and important point. Kamala Harris, do you know much about her? I've got a question here about how impressed you are with her. I, I don't. I, I really, I, I met her a couple times. Uh, I don't know much about her. Um, she was not a very good candidate. And the one, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful she's, I know she's an extremely intelligent woman. And some people, you know, it's not right for them to be president, but could be a great vice president, you know. But I think that what, what came through and the reason her candidacy flopped, she pulled out before mm-hmm. Iowa even, was people intuited she didn't know her mind. You know, she was sort of for single payer and then rolled back and something in the middle. And she was mm-hmm. constantly sort of trying to tread the line between the center left and the far left. And um, I think as a partner for Biden, where he's setting the course, clearly center left, uh, she could be very effective. She's certainly extremely intelligent, you know, and um, we'll just have to see. Now, were you at all surprised that senior Republicans went along with, or are going along with Trump's attempt to put a loyalist on the Supreme Court? And I've got a particular question about Lindsey Graham, where you particularly, were you surprised, disappointed that he, he, you know, seems to have changed his position over the course of, you know, just just a few years. Well, you know, the th- biggest thing I've learned, Robert, from the last um, three and a half years of Trump and his relationship to his party, because basically what we have now, we have a president without spine. We have a president without shame, mm. backed by a party without spine, amplified mm. by Fox Network without integrity. And that trifecta is really dangerous. President without spine, a president without shame, excuse me, a party without spine, and a network without integrity. And that it's a machine. So I guess the biggest thing I've learned, and it shocks me, it really shocks me, is that the Republican Party has actually become a giant political brothel. That's all it is. It's a giant political brothel that rents itself out by the night to whoever will energize its base. So it started with Sarah Palin, and then the Tea Party, and now it's Trump. And whoever will energize its base, they will simply lay down for. And the red light is always on. It's amazing. The red light is always on. And it's amazing to me. And this is the biggest thing I've learned that shocked me. Mm. What people will do for $175,000 a year in salary and free parking at National Airport. (laughs) That's what you get as a congressman and a senator. You get $175,000 in salary and free parking at National Airport. And the willingness of people to politically prostitute themselves to Donald Trump, one of the most deviant, aberrant people you've ever encountered in your life, let alone in the presidency. People's willingness to do that for 175 grand and free parking at National Airport absolutely just leaves me slack-jawed. There's quite a lot to leave us slack-jawed at the moment, isn't there? So I've got a slightly more sober question, and it's whether you could identify the two or three most important foreign policy differences that Biden would bring if he if he wins? It's a good question. Again, Trump has actually built up a lot of leverage for Biden by imposing tariffs on China and tearing up the Iran nuclear deal. So the thing about Trump is that he is really good at breaking things. If you want something broken, he is your guy. And so he kind of broke the trade relationship we had with China, the, you know, how it was going, and that was actually a healthy thing. And um, he broke the Iran deal. And frankly, I supported the Iran deal. I thought it was worth a try, but I don't miss it because I think Iran really overreached. Mm-hmm. And so 
what Trump's strength is he's really good at breaking things. Mm. He's terrible at building things mm. because to build things, he has to go to his base and say, yeah, I know I promised you the moon, but you're going to have to settle for half a loaf. And he's afraid to do that. So, again, on, on immigration, he, he stopped the flow of illegal immigration. But did he come up with an immigration bill that would actually forge a compromise between Democrats and Republicans? No. So in all these these theaters, he, he actually you can't you cannot take it away from him. He's done some important things, created mm. important leverage that a Joe Biden coming mm. in and inheriting could actually deploy in a really smart way. And so I could see Biden doing an Iran deal, but not the old deal. I could see Biden, you know, continuing with some tariffs with China, but just not to the extreme Trump did. So there's a real chance here for forging a compromise that Trump, at least in his first term, was not willing and able to do. And you know, Trump I mean, has said uh, that if he is reelected, he'll do a deal with Iran in 10 minutes. Another question from the audience. Obviously, the Republican Party can go, can go in one of two directions. They can continue to believe if Trump loses, that he somehow, you know, represents the future of their party. And it's been very interesting to me, the way that Donald Trump Jr. appears to be now resonating with that party. Or, you know, and we've seen, you know, the Lincoln Project, you know, those Republicans who absolutely detest Trump, you know, might be able to get their party back. How do you think it'll go? Well, I think, let me start at 30,000 feet, Robert. I think political mm. parties all over the world are exploding. That mm. all the political parties that emerged from World War II built around <coughs> the welfare state are actually blowing up. Look what happened yeah. to the Tory party. Labor became crazy left. The liberals disappeared. The Republicans became a cult of Trump. The Democrats will blow up as soon as they get back into power. Macron is the only leader in the world who is a leader without a party and is an opposition without a leader. So um, I have no clue who governs Italy, but I know they're not Christian Democrats. So um, there's clearly this is a global phenomenon, you know, sure. that's happening. So and, the fracturing um, of established structures is global. Exactly. Yeah. And, they're, and they're just part of that. And so um, uh, so this could be a really healthy and necessary thing that basically if Trump is defeated, that the party will fracture. There will be the the Trump version that will go off with him or Don Jr. or Eric Trump, uh, known as Uday and Kusai here, you know, Saddam's sons. And the others will maybe merge into the Democratic center right. And then maybe the far left will peel off. So we could get a real grand restructuring here. I think Biden, if he wins, will definitely appoint at least two Republicans to his cabinet. I, I would bet. I, I, let's say I was surprised if he doesn't, because he'll want to actually consolidate that You're fracture. Yeah, sure. um, so um, I, I, I hope he, I've been encouraging him to do that. Let's put it that way. And I hope he does. You know, I'm encouraging okay. through my column. Yeah, that's no, very, very interesting indeed. I've got a question here asking, you know, what is your view about the sort of Trump broker deal? I mean, I think perhaps his role has been slightly overstated between um, Israel and the UAE. Yeah, so I thought that was a very important deal. I, I wrote in support of it. And um, the last few weeks, Trump has been quoting me as a proof that his deal was uh, was good, because even even someone who despises me, like Tom Friedman from the New York Times, said it was good. So, look, you know, I, I, I'll start again from 30,000 feet and work Ooh. down, Robert. Anything that makes the Middle East look more like the EU and less like the Syrian civil war, that's a good thing for me. You know, where people can travel and trade and, and you know, move around and have normal relations, that's a mm. good thing. And, and that's, that's what this is. Second, I think it's important because we've just seen the most uh, successful Arab state, the UAE, and the most successful non-Arab state in the region, forge a partnership. A forge a partnership that has strategic dimensions, you know, obviously vis-a-vis -vis Iran, but also be about agriculture and trade and academic exchanges and tourism. And I wouldn't exaggerate that. You know, I don't think there's going to be the UAE-Israel, you know, merging of economies. But if you're sitting in Beirut right now under Hezbollah's thumb, and this morning you had to spend two hours finding someone to barter eggs for chickens with, and you look at this, what these guys are doing, well, you look at Hezbollah uh, very differently. I wrote one of my favorite columns over New Year's. Um, it was uh, uh, right after Trump's team assassinated Qasem Soleimani in, in Iran. 
I was in New Zealand at the time, and I got a call from my editors. They said, Trump assassinated Qasem Soleimani. You got to write about it. I said, guys, I'm in New Zealand. Okay, I, I, I got to got to think about this. So I, I thought about it. I slept on I got up the next morning. I wrote one of my favorite leads, Robert. I wrote a column that began, Trump just killed the dumbest man in Iran. <laughs> and what was that about? What was I saying? I said, what was Qasem Soleimani's business model? His business model was to hire Arab Shiites to kill Arab Sunnis in mm. Lebanon, Yemen, Syria, and Iraq. In mm. other words, it was to produce failed states everywhere yep. around Iran at a time of massive climate change in the region, at yep. a time of population explosion in Iran, and yep. in a country that has enormously talented population and, and amazing civilization, the Persian yep. civilization. Look what he did with the resources that country has and the, and the things it needed to do to enable its young people to realize their full potential. And so what I was doing was my declaration of independence from the old narrative. The old narrative is this, this guy was the most wise, you know, underground warrior in the middle. Yeah, I'm sure it's true. But what did Iranians get out of it? What did he do to his country? And that's how you have to see this Iran-Israel deal. You know, people say, yeah, but the Palestinians aren't taken care of. And, and they did it for F-35s. And I always remind them one of my first rules of Middle East reporting. In the Middle East, big change happens when the big players do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Uh, if you wait for everyone to do the right thing for the right reasons, you'll wait forever. So I, I think this deal is important in and of itself. And most importantly, it's important for what it accidentally revealed. Because what it accidentally revealed was the following. Bibi Netanyahu, for years, has told different American secretaries of states and presidents, test me, test me, test me. Give me a deal. I can test me. I'm, wink, wink, Nanda, test me. So Kushner accidentally tested him. He accidentally yeah. did it because Kushner was just so pro-Israel. He basically said to Netanyahu and his ambassador in Washington, you write the terms that you can accept. And I'll make that the American plan. And that's basically what they did. And what did, the, what did it all reveal? Bibi could not accept Bibi's own plan. Okay, because the plan called for a two-state solution. Israel gets to a next 30%. The Palestinians get 70%, all loosely connected, you know, capital outside of Jerusalem. And even that, surrounded by an Israeli army, Bibi drew up that plan. And Bibi could not accept Bibi's own plan. Because the settlers are so far to his right and so own him that he couldn't say yes to it so the reason the deal happened was he was up a tree with the settlers he was you know wanted to annex anyways trump was stopping him from doing it so the uae came along and said look i got an idea get out and and, and that's what we'll do so that's how it all happened so it was important in and of itself and for what it revealed now we haven't got an enormous amount of time one of the earliest questions was actually about 60 million evangelicals in America, 80% of whom probably support Trump. I'd like to slightly broaden it a bit and just say, look, we, we, you know, we have an established church in the UK, but all our elections are completely secular. But religion does have a role. And a lot of the anti-abortion stuff is, you know, Roe Wade and all of that is, is, is having. So what role does faith have in all of this? And how hard for Biden is the sort of faith, you know, is 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 that is 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 the evangelical vote something he can ever tap into? Yeah, I mean, he can, I think, and there's there is evidence that not all evangelicals are happy with Trump. You're mm. seeing this uh, most notably, Robert, in Iowa. Mm. So Iowa is a state with very strong. My wife's from Iowa. I'm from Minnesota. Very strong evangelical community, mm. and Iowa is now a toss-up state. I mean, Trump mm. won that last time in a landslide. Yeah. So that's yeah. clearly evangelical. That's not just suburban women. That's evangelicals also becoming disgusted with him. So, mm. But we do have this trend in America. You know, we're still a church-going country in a way Europeans are not, you know, in many mm. ways. And personally, I, I hope that Roe v. Wade gets thrown out of the Supreme Court and is forced that every state has to decide what their abortion laws are. Let's put it in the hands mm. of the voters because that will take that issue away from Republicans. And no longer will Republicans say, I don't care what he does. It's about Roe v. Wade. No, that's for you and your state. And let's mm. talk about national politics. I think nothing has has more skewed more mm. people to vote for bad Republicans than this issue of Roe v. Wade. Does anyone in his right mind think Donald Trump cares about Roe v. Wade and, and unborn you know, children? 
you know, this this man is one of the most, you know, well, I won't even go into it. You, you know it. You know what I mean. I think I think I think we've got some sense of what you mean. Tom. <laughs> um, yeah. so, um, we, we haven't got a lot of time. I've got one question. I mean, I've, you know, b- believe it or not, we've actually got a positive viewpoint about Donald Trump over here with, um, uh, you know, one of the audience saying, doesn't he de- deserve credit for directing you know, huge unprecedented federal funds into vaccine research. I actually, I've got a sort of slightly broader question I want to ask you, which is when we've got a vaccine, it's going to be a big moment. And it's, I think it's also going to be a big moment in terms of, in, 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 in a sense, the, the global reputation of different nations. I mean, let's just say China gets there first and they might. The smart thing for China to do would be to ship vast amounts of the vaccine free to the developing world. Do you think there's any chance that America will, in a sense, take a a world-first attitude to a vaccine if the vaccine does arrive first in America? I, I find it highly unlikely, given everything Trump has already said. He'd rather vaccinate people on the moon, you know, than anywhere outside of America and right now. And on the question of does he deserve credit for massively investing in vaccines, Look, he was president. He did it. But that was a no brainer. I mean, that was I I believe any president, any other Republican or any other Democrat would have done everything they could to, you know, amplify our our, you know, our, our, our health innovation system. One also has to remember Trump is currently in the Supreme Court trying to destroy Obamacare, take health care away. The little health care 20 million Americans have right now. So I'm, I'm not really ready to be particularly generous toward him on on his concerns, you know, but I think he did it. God bless him for it. I think anybody would have done it. Now, I've got, we're almost out of time. I've got two questions. One is you've been talking about, you know, the sort of age of humiliation and humiliation has obviously become a much more motivating factor for important cause of focus all over the rich world driving populist policies to, or or, or driving the rise of populism to a large extent. Do you think, uh, as one of the most distinguished employees of the liberal media, that the liberal media in general understands the importance of humiliation and talks to these people in in in, in, in the right kind of language? I, I don't want to generalize, you know, for the whole speak for or against the whole liberal media, but the question has merit. And it's something that we should be asking ourselves every day, all the time. Why do we miss the Trump phenomena for starters? Why do we continue to miss it in some cases now? I did a long column about this uh, just a few weeks ago with my friend Michael Sandel, who had written a book called The Tyranny of Merit, which is about yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, this whole question of, you know, as well. So, it's something I've been alive to because coming out of the Middle East, I, I, I've, I've interviewed so many young, you know, Muslim males in Europe who feel humiliated, Palestinians who feel humiliated, Israelis, East, you know, Eastern Jews who feel humiliated by Western Jews. You, you name it, you, you, you'll bump into humiliation everywhere. Chinese who are angry about a century of humiliations, Russians after losing the Cold War. You know, it's something I've been alive to for a long time, and um, I will just tell you as a general matter to close. Everything I learned as a foreign correspondent, the need to monitor elections, worry about coups, worry about humiliation, all the stuff I thought was about over there has come Mm -hmm. over here. And the greatest advantage I have now, I think, as a reporter is my experiences of having been a foreign correspondent covering coups and and, um, and humiliation and election shenanigans and I never thought it would be, but the Middle East has followed me home. So final, final question. We're going to bring it close to home, given, you know, where our audience is. Do you know what Joe Biden's view of Boris Johnson and Brexit may be? And if he wins, therefore, what it would mean for American-British relations? And actually, more, more, more broadly than that, you know, it was pretty clear that Barack Obama wasn't really, you know, Anglophile is too narrow a term. He wasn't really a great lover of the United Kingdom. Do, do, do you have a sense of, of, you know, what Joe Biden's view of the UK is? I, I would say I don't have a specific sense, but I would simply say this. He is an Atlanticist. 
He's someone who believes in the Atlantic Alliance. He's someone who believes in NATO, someone who believes in the EU, someone who believes in uh, in the in the special relationship with the UK. And it may be a shadow of what it once was, but but Biden's in the stream of all those American presidents, be they Republicans or Democrats. He, there is no outlier there uh, to the far left, let alone to the Trumpian far right. Brilliant. Well, listen, I'm afraid we are now out of time. I just want to say on behalf of everybody watching, but particularly on behalf of me, because I've loved talking to you. I knew you would uh, deliver absolutely brilliant insights and you have as always. So, you know, thanks so much. And let's all let's all hope and those watching who are religious pray that we don't see that November 3rd catastrophe that you fear. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you.